a lot of us, it's his love. For others of us, it may be his amazing power. You think about creation, the vastness of the universe. For others, it is his wisdom, his justice, his grace. But the thing I think that has sustained me more than any of God's qualities in my personal walk with him has been the very one the choir just sang of, and that is his faithfulness. Oh, my goodness. How faithful he has been. How absolutely unwavering has his provision been. And that fills my heart, and I hope yours as well, with a sense of such thankfulness and peace. But i got to be honest, it also reminds me of how many times I have been unfaithful to him. And Dagnabbit, he's still faithful, <laughs> even when I'm not. It's like, are you kidding me? How many times could you have thrown me out on the ash pile? How many times could you have said, I've had enough of you, boy? I've tried and tried and tried. And yet he always remains faithful. And please understand, faithful does not mean that he's just some Santa Claus. No matter how much you misbehave, you still get something for Christmas. I'm not talking about that kind. I'm talking about a a father that is faithful enough to punish me, to discipline me when I need it, to tell me no. He's always been faithful. And he always will be. Thanks be to his precious name. Take your Bibles, if you would, and join me at the passage that Marianne read for us just a few moments ago, Matthew chapter 21. This morning in our Bible study hour, we dwelt on the first, what, 11 verses or so of this chapter, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, and how the people were confused as to who Jesus really was, and how oftentimes, even for those of us who are his followers, we tend, at least subconsciously, subliminally at times, to get confused about what his role is in our lives. Right now, out in the beacon, um, Brother Ray Brewer is bringing a message on the next section in this chapter about Jesus and the cleansing of the temple. We are going to spend our time this morning in here looking at the next part of this passage. Today will be the last Sunday that we meet as two congregations. Next Sunday morning, because of the walk with Jesus that will be going on out there and the getting ready for that, we've been asked if we could to bring everybody over here. And so we'll all worship together. Of course, Easter Sunday is unique. Uh, there'll be three services at three different times, and you're welcome to come to any of those. Uh, the, me- the service will be basically the same. The message will be the same at all three. And then on the um, 23rd, Um, we will all just stay together and worship together because then on the 30th, Greg will be with us to begin leading us in worship. And so this is the last Sunday that we'll be in two locations. And so please keep the group out there in your prayers even as they are praying for us. Several years ago, um, Robert Ludlum, the author, wrote a series of books that I dearly loved. Matter of fact, for a long time, I kept copies of every one of the series. And I was given the task when we would travel across country in Tanzania. We normally would travel with another couple. And the, other hu- the husband of the other couple said, I'll drive if you'll read. I was the only one that had the stomach to be able to, to look at the book when your car is going like this and read. 
And I would even read, I would even get different voices of different characters. And over the course of several years, we read through every one of the Bourne books, B-O-U-R-N-E. And loved them. And then later would read them again. And then they came out, at least some of them, in movies. And I've not seen all the movies, but I, I love the books. And the story starts out with this young man who wakes up in a place that he doesn't know, on a ship, and he is not sure about who he is or what's going on in his life, but he finds out that even though he speaks English, he's an American, he also can speak fluent Russian and German and French. He finds out that he can actually run a mile in just under six minutes at a 10,000 feet altitude. He knows certain things that he doesn't know how he knows. He knows all of these things. The one thing he doesn't know is, who am I? And why are people trying to kill me? And today we come to a passage that asks that very same question. Who is this man, and why are they trying to kill him? Of course, the one big difference is Jason Bourne didn't know who he was. The main character of our story didn't know exactly who he is, and he wants us to know him too. Now remember, this is still the first couple of days after Jesus has come into Jerusalem. He'll never go back to Galilee again, at least before his resurrection. He is there now and will, in just a few days, find the end of his life at the hands of the very people who are questioning him today. Just one day prior, he had walked into the temple and decided to do a little bit of house cleaning, a little bit of furniture rearranging, a knocked-over table here, some dust flying in the air from dropped money over there. He rearranges things, creates a havoc to the point they have to close the temple, a temple that was never closed until sunset and opened again at sunrise. But when this man walked in, created chaos. They had to close the gates, the doors, the temple. On his way in the next morning, he sees a fig tree, fully leaved, but with no fruit on it. And he curses the fig tree, and the fig tree withers, representing Israel, who on the surface looked like it was exactly what it should be, but there was no fruit there. And now he walks into Jerusalem, walks back into that very same temple. Ooh, there he is. And what does he do? He finds a little stool and he sits down and begins to teach. Well, that's about all that the authorities can stand. Here he is one day wreaking havoc, creating chaos, starting a riot. And the next day he's sitting down like nothing's ever happened, just teaching like any rabbi would. And he's not even been trained in the rabbinical schools. He's just a Galilean half-breed. And so, in our passage, we come to this question. And, and i gotta be, I got to tell you if you, are a, if you are an outline follower, on the back of the yellow sheet that has the prayer guide on it is an outline for today's message. And uh, the Lord and I wrestled at the JBOC for several hours during the night last night, and some things got changed. The general course of the message will be the same. The, I would have changed the headings, but I'm going to stick with what they are for now but you might get a little bit of a subtitle, so don't be confused if it says, well, that's not what it says in the outline. And those of you back there in the tech booth, just go on with the next slide. That's it. Just keep on. Just say, we know not where he's from or what he's doing, but he you know, will do whatever he deems is best. And, uh, and we'll, we'll get to the end and to the, to the response when the time approaches. But we start, first of all, with this question that they ask of him. In verse 23, the scriptures tell us that when he entered the temple complex, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? That's a perfectly natural question. I have to be perfectly honest with you and tell you that as pastor, there have been times when I have seen a group of people meeting in our building that I didn't know anything about, and I stop and say, excuse me, 
Who was it that gave you permission to meet here today? Why are you here? And not that I'm accusing them, I just want to make sure I understand because, you know, how did it somehow or another get past my radar? And I find out there's a lot of things that get past my radar. Um, but most of the time, it's, it's, it's okay. But I just want to find out, okay, you know, who's leading this group or what are you guys up to or how can I help you? Is there anything I can do for you? You need me to put on a pot of coffee or something for you? Whatever. So it's a perfectly legitimate question, but these weren't asking for information. These guys were asking because they were making an accusation. We're the ones in charge here. We're the ones with the authority. And we know you didn't get permission from us to do this stuff. So who gave you permission to do these things? See, they're hoping that he'll say one of two things. If he says, well, I got it from a man, they'll say, no, 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 there is no man but me, us. We're the ones that get permission. If he said he got it from God, then we'll charge him with blasphemy. Because now he is going totally against the way God organized the Levitical priestly system, going around that and doing things without proper permission, and yet he says he's doing it from God. So we'll accuse him of blasphemy and have him tried. So I think they got him caught in a conundrum. We've seen this before now, haven't we? And Jesus says, well, before I answer your question, I have a few questions for you. And in the end, he basically asks three big questions. This is kind of what I changed in the original outline. He basically asks three big questions. The first one is right here in the next verse. Jesus said, I'll also ask you one question. If you answer me, then I'll answer you your question. Where did John's baptism come from? From heaven or from men? Now, why in the world is Jesus bringing John the Baptist into this thing? John the Baptist is dead and gone. He's had his head lopped off, and he is just a page in the history books. Why is Jesus bringing up John? Jesus has one purpose in mind, and it's not to confound them. It's not because he knows they'll not have an answer, although he did know that. It's not because he wants to get them in trouble with the people. It's because Jesus does what Jesus always does. He says, let's quit playing games here and get down to the heart of the matter. Some of you will remember when we did the first part of Matthew several months ago. We did Matthew chapter 1 up through about chapter 13 or 14, and I told you then that the theme of the entire book of Matthew, the theme that I was going to build my sermons on, was all authority to all nations that demands all allegiance. And several weeks in a row, we talked about God's authority in Christ, and it was to all nations, and it demands all allegiance or all obedience. And we remember back in Matthew chapter 5, and I won't go into it now, but we talked about the fact that Jesus said, if someone takes your coat, give him your cloak too. Not because you're going to be good and, and do that, but to show them the error of what they're doing. If someone strikes you on one cheek, was it just any cheek? Remember which one it was? Your right cheek. And the only way to get struck on your right cheek is with someone's left hand. Remember that whole thing we had, conversation we had? Which means they're treating you like a slave. You turn the other cheek to them. Don't hit them back. Just turn the other cheek and say, if you're going to strike me, strike me as an equal and not as a slave. To bring to light what they're actually doing. Jesus was in the business of constantly doing that. Using the authority he'd been given by his father to bring the depth of the reality of what was going on in a situation to light. So what he does, he says, before I tell you whose authority I did this by, let me just ask you a question. Let's go back to John for just a second. Where did John get his authority? Was it from God or was it from men? And they begin to talk among themselves, and they say, well, okay, now let's think about this. If we say he got it from God, which is what the people would want us to say, then he's going to say, why didn't you believe him? Because what was it that was John's main message? Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. 
I come to you, baptizing you with water, but the one that comes after me is greater than me, and I'm not even worthy to, un- to, to unlace his shoes, his sandals, and he will baptize with fire. I am the one who was told, prepare the way for the Messiah to come. So John's entire message was to present Jesus for who he truly was. That's the part that they didn't believe. Repent, because the kingdom of heaven is here. Not it's coming, but it's here. But if we say it was just for men, that he was crazy in the head, then the people will be upset with us. We value what the people say. And they said, well... We're not real sure where you got it from. Jesus said, okay, then that means you're not really sure where I got my authority from either. I'm not going to answer you. You see, he wanted them to understand this was not about them and Jesus. This was not about the religious leaders, the, 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 the scribes, the elders, this, and, and Jesus. This was about their relationship to God himself. They claimed to be followers of God. They claimed to be servants of God. They claimed to be being obedient to God. They claimed all of these things, and yet in their very lives, they were not listening to the very messengers that God sent to them. They would not hear because they had already predetermined in their mind the way that things were supposed to be. They knew. They had all the answers. They didn't need anybody to teach them. They were the ones that answered the questions. They were the ones, but they couldn't answer this one. And so then Jesus goes right on and says, as long as we're asking questions, let me, let me give you an example and let's see if we can find another question. So we have this first parable that he tells them. He says, without even taking a breath, but what do you think? Now that's not the question, that's just leading into it. He tells about these two sons of this man, a father who has two sons. He goes to the first son, says, son, go work in the vineyard day. The servant, the, the son says, I'm not interested in that. Thanks, dad, anyway. I got better things to do with my time. But later on, he feels guilty, and he goes out and he works. Father says the same thing to the second son. Son, go out and work in the field. I'm on my way, dad. I'll see you. I'm, I'm going. But he has no intention of going. He's just trying to make his dad feel good. And then later he'll say, oh, dad, I'm sorry, I forgot. You know, I got busy and things. I, I'll go tomorrow. One says, no, I won't, but does. One says, yes, I will, but doesn't. Now comes his second question. Verse 31, which of the two did the father's will? Okay, will you answer that for me? Which one did the father's will, the first one or the second one? Yeah, the first one did. Even though the first one was rebellious at first, was self-centered and selfish, When he came to himself, when he realized what he had done, he was sorry for what he had done, he repented, changed his path, changed his mind, changed his way of looking at it, and went and did the work. And so when Jesus asked them the question, which one did the Father's will, they answered just like you did. Well, the first one, of course. And Jesus says, you're right. So... Let's look at the tax collectors and the prostitutes. Now, what better pairing can you have in the first century of Israel than that? You know about the tax collectors, don't you? Who was their boss? Rome was their boss. What was their job? To extort money out of their own fellow Israelites. How did they get paid? They got paid for as much as they could cheat. Rome says, we want 10 cents on the dollar. They go charge 25 cents on the dollar. Guess who kept the 15? The tax collector did. They hated the tax collectors worse than they hated Rome. Because they were turncoats. And we don't have to go into what prostitutes do. 
So they were the worst of the low. They were the most unclean, the most despised. And yet Jesus said, yes, they were rebellious at first, but then they heard the message and they repented. And now they're doing the things that God has told them to do. And I'm telling you, they are going to be in the kingdom ahead of you because you said all the right things, but you didn't do any of them. And immediately, two big lessons jump right out at us. Two main thoughts hit us right smack in the face. Number one, it's never too late to do what is right. Listen to me, brothers and sisters. Listen carefully. You may be away from God today. You may have never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. Maybe you've been attending church all your life, but you have never surrendered your life to Him, turned over control of your life, accepted what He did for you on the cross, repent of your life, and say, Lord, I want to make a new path with you as my Savior and my Lord. And you say, Steve, Pastor, it is too late for me now, my brother, my sister. It is never too late. Never. You may be a believer. You have wandered so far down that path of the prodigal. You've gotten so far away, you say, you know what? I couldn't even find my way back. I'm not even sure I know how to get back. I'm just going through the motions because I'm hoping by coming here, maybe God will look down on me with a little bit of a smile on his face. I'm telling you, it is never too late to be obedient. But I'll tell you the other thing it teaches us, and that is God looks us in the eye and says, you tell me you love me, show me your faith. I want to see it. We got into this last week now, didn't we? This whole issue about we don't work to earn our salvation. We don't work to even prove our salvation. We work as a result of our salvation. You see, in one sense, this is, this is Matthew's parallel, I guess we could say, to the story in Luke of the prodigal son. You remember those two boys? We spent a lot of time in that story. We spent three Sundays on that one story about the prodigal son. The son who rebelled against his father got off in riotous living, repented, came back, fell on his face before his father. Father, I'm no more worthy to be called your son. He was the bad boy, but he repented. But remember that other son? Ha! You let him back in. I've given you my time every day. I have worked for you. I've slaved for you. And now you killed. You wouldn't even give me a goat for my friends. I'm not coming into your party for that one of yours. Now, who was the true son? And so in Jesus' story here in Matthew 21, we have this same thing. The one who says, I've been rebellious, I've been away from you, but I've repented. And the other one says, I have never left you, but neither have they ever done anything that showed a true sense of obedience. All they did was give lip service. May we beware. But Jesus has another question he has to ask, and he does it in this longer parable. Now, just to make sure we're on the same page, they have asked him a question about authority. Who gave you the authority to do what you're doing? Jesus says, let me back that up and ask you a question. How do you see God's authority in your life? This is not really about you and me. This is about you and God, you and your heavenly Father. And so he gives an example of two people, two sons. Which one are you? And then the, the third question is, what is God going to do to people who say they'll do something, give lip service, but don't follow it up, and prove the truth of what they say by what they do? And he tells the story. Now, instead of a father, we have a landowner. And the landowner, of course, is God. He plants this vineyard. That's Israel. 
puts a fence around it, digs a wine press in it, builds a watchtower, does everything, gives everything that needs to be for that, for that vineyard to grow and to flourish. Everything that would be needed. Doesn't ask anything of the tenant farmers except at the time of harvest to give him his portion as their rent. They have been given a trust. And their, and their responsibility is, at the time of the harvest, to give back a portion of that to the owner. And then he sends his servants to the farmers to get the fruit. Servants were the prophets. The teachers of the Old Testament, those who came and those who were not listened to. We think of Jeremiah. We think of Isaiah. We think of Hosea and others of the prophets who came preaching the truth. And they were rejected by the people, rejected by the leadership. Rejected by the king. So he sends in verse 34 his servants to the farmers. The farmers take the slaves, beat one, kill one, stone one. Then 36, he sends another set of slaves, more than the first. They do the same to them. And then in verse 37, finally, he sent his son to them. Surely they will respect my son. But how do they treat the son? They see the son, verse 38. They say among themselves, this is the heir. This is the father's only son. If we kill him, the father has no one to leave, the, leave it to, and it will devolve to us when the, when the landowner dies. Then it will be ours, all ours, and we can keep it for ourselves. Let's kill him and take his inheritance. And the wording in verse 39 is so amazing. So they seized him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. Do the words of Hebrews come to mind to you when it says in the book of Hebrews they killed him outside the camp, outside the walls of the city? This, exactly, this exact thing will happen just four days from this incident. They will take him outside and they will kill him. They think the landowner is weak and meek and powerless because he sends these servants. He must be too busy to care. He must be too busy to worry. So he'll find out that his poor beloved son died on the road on the way, and now he'll just have to leave it to us, I guess, and we'll get the benefit of it. But Jesus says this story's not finished yet, is it? Verse 40, he says, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those farmers? And they answer him, I guess they just weren't smart enough to understand who he's talking about. They just didn't quite get it. And they say, well, (laughs) he'll destroy them. Are you kidding me? They killed his servants. They killed his son. He will come. He will destroy them. He will throw them out of the vineyard, and he will get other tenants who will give him what he is due. And Jesus said, that's exactly right. And he changes the analogy from a farmer to a builder, and he says, you just like a builder will look and search to find just the right stone to use. Some translators think it was the foundation, the cornerstone of the foundation. Some think it was the capstone on the wall. Either way, it was the one that made the rest of the building fit together properly. They're looking, they're hunting, they look for certain stones. Is it the right size? Is it the right shape? Will it fit? Will it work? Can we put it in place? And they find the absolute perfect stone, but they don't see it, so they push it to the side, and they keep looking for something else. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This has come from the Lord, and it is wonderful in our eyes. And then Jesus announces the result. I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation producing its fruit. 
given to a nation. Now, lest we misunderstand, I think all of us are smart enough that we're going to have this problem, but I'm just going to make sure. Because there are folks out there on the radio and on the television and in the bookstores who will convince you that God has put a curse on the Jews because they were the ones that killed the Messiah. And God turned the work over to Gentiles. My brethren, everyone in this story was a Jew. (laughs) The followers of Jesus were Jews. Those who rejected him were Jews. The leaders were Jews. Jesus was a Jew. The nation that God is building is the church. We become the new Israel in that regard. We become the new people who have been given the vineyard. And we're tasked with taking the fruit of that and giving it back to God as a gift to him. Jews and Gentiles, as Paul said in Galatians, the wall of separation has fallen between Jew and Gentile. We are one church. And that's why regardless of what some may say, we must evangelize the Jews. Let me say that again. We must evangelize every unsaved Jewish person so that they can hear the gospel and come to faith in Christ. Thank you. I understand there are very respected teachers who will tell you, don't worry about the Jews, God will take care of them. That is not what Scripture says. Scripture says that the Israel that will be saved is the the new Israel that Paul tells us in Romans is us. He keeps us. Everyone who proclaims Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior will be saved. Everyone who does not will be condemned. Jew, Gentile, slave, free, man, woman, everyone who rejects Christ will spend an eternity separated from him. You see, that's the story of this passage, this particular part of it. The story that Jesus wants them to understand, the thing he wants them to see is that, number one, God is amazingly patient. Does it make sense to you if you were the landowner, you'd send three sets of emissaries before you'd go yourself? I wouldn't have waited that long. When I got the word back about the first ones, I'd be right there on my horse. I'd be on their door. We've got to talk here. Because I'm not as patient as God is. But God is patient, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so he gives time. He continues to send the word to those who need to hear it. He sends the word to us who need to hear it so that we can grow in our walk with Christ. He continues to nudge us forward in our spiritual lives. One of you said to me one time, I must have preached an extremely... I don't know, challenging, I don't know what it was. But somebody said, Pastor, you just need to be patient with us. Well, I hope I always am patient because God's very patient with me. But the bottom line is God is patient with us, but his patience will only last so long. And then it comes time for justice. And for those of us who are in the process but not quite there yet, there will come a day when he will say, your time is done. For those of us who have been fighting over whether we're going to give Christ control of this part of our life or that part of our life or this other part of our life or keep it to ourselves, defend it ourselves, hold on to it ourselves, he says, there will come a time when we will place you before the judgment seat of Christ and we will measure what is gold and silver and precious stones and what is wood and hay and stubble and we'll see how much is left. So Jesus' words to them and to us is, don't think you can continue to put these things off in your life. They are critical. So Jesus takes this question that they've asked him. Whose authority are you doing these things? Jesus said there's a much, much more important question than that. Matter of fact, Jesus' answer is not I have the authority. It's in my Father. You notice both of the parables are not about him. He's just a minor character. 
In fact, the one about this father and the two sons, he's not even a character. The main character in the two parables is God the Father. He is the one who has all authority. He is the one who has all power. He is the one who dictates. He is the one who is the Lord and master over all. And then he delegates to his son all authority. Matthew 28, 18. Has been given to me, Jesus says. Wasn't his. And I know we can play all around with, okay, he's co-equal with the Father. But as the Son, in his role as the Son, the incarnate Word of God, he has been given authority, sent by his Father to do the work that God has called him to do. So he goes to, the parent, to, the, to these leaders and says, okay, let's, let's shine the flashlight into the dark corners of your heart. This is not really about why am I doing what I'm doing. The real question is, how are you relating to your Heavenly Father? How are you relating to the God of Israel? You say you're doing the right things, but you're not doing them. You say you believe, but you don't live like you believe. You say that you want to be obedient, but you're not being obedient. You are like that second son that says all the right things, but doesn't. You are like that tenant farmer who is being asked to give, to return to the landowner, to the master, the fruit that he is due, and you are refusing to do that. And so because of that, you will be thrown out in another nation that will do that will be brought in a new nation, a new wineskin, a new set of tenant farmers that will give the fruit. And that leads us to the question we have to ask ourselves. And that is, which son am I? What kind of tenant farmer am I? God has given me. God has given you. God has given us both individually and as a church family a harvest field to work in. And he says, I expect, no, I demand a return for all that I have given you. Well, but you know, we're just kind of weak, and I just don't know, think I know enough to be able to, I, I'm just not really sure. Give me, give me some time. And, and, and he says, I'll give you a little bit of time, but you have to understand, I won't give you forever. And so the challenge for us today is to look at our own lives. Now, do I think we're like those teachers and elders? No, I don't think that at all. Do I think there are times that we like to say something when we know we probably aren't really going to do it? I speak of what I know, and I have a feeling probably we're that way at times, aren't we? You don't have to nod. I see you nodding on the inside. And sometimes, like those tenant farmers, we forget. We forget. We forget that everything we have comes from Him. We forget that the very fact that we woke up this morning was by His grace. I can guarantee you tomorrow or whenever the next Republic Times comes out, you'll see the list of several people that died in their sleep this, this last night. For them, their time had come. But we're all here. So the question is, what fruit are we giving back to Him in appreciation for all that He has given to us? The landowner says, I'm going to let you tenant farm my property. I want you to give me 10% as your rent. And the other 90% you can keep for yourself. Whether it's of your time, your financial resources, other things. And I'm not trying to be mathematical, saying it should be exactly 10%. I'm just using that as an example. But he wants us to give back out of our appreciation for what he's done for us. And then we look at our lives and say, okay, what am I giving him? Only you can answer that. So the real question is not, who is he? The question is, who are you? Who am I? Who are we? Let's pray. Father.
This is the truth of this passage. Jesus, just like with them in our lives, He cuts through all of our excuses, all of our yeah buts, and He says, all I want to know is, are you going to obey me or not? Are you going to surrender every part of your life to me or not? Are you going to let me be Lord or not? Father, for so many of us, accepting your Son as our Savior was almost a no-brainer. We knew we had sinned. We knew we had offended you. You sent your Son to die. We accept his payment on our behalf, and we thank you for that. But perhaps for some of us, that's where it stopped. Maybe not completely, but for the most part. And the whole concept of recognizing your ownership of our lives was one of those things that's been hard for us to come to. We may have been a believer for decades, and we still say, well, I give the Lord an hour every Sunday morning, or two hours every Sunday morning, or five hours every week. But we do it grudgingly. We don't do it in a partnership with you. We do it as if we were just paying off a debt. And even then, we do it only if we feel like it's in our best interest. So today, Father, you're asking us to examine our own lives. Your Holy Spirit right now is working in our hearts. Are we truly, fully surrendered to your Lordship? Is Jesus truly the Lord of our lives? I pray today, Father, that as we respond to what we've heard, as we sing, as we think, as we pray, as we sing, take my life, lead me, Lord, make my life useful to Thee, that that will be true of us. And Father, for those that are here today that have never surrendered their lives to Jesus Christ as Savior, turned and surrendered to Him and placed our lives into His hands, I pray that today would be the day that that would happen. And if not to happen, at least to begin that process. So Father, as we respond now, I ask that you would move in our heart.